Hello and welcome back to the program. My name is Michael Finney. Today I am joined by John Croft, author of Color Capital of the World. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Michael, thank you for having me. Um, my name is John Croft, and I am a Midwesterner at heart, uh, born and raised in Ohio, but I have lived outside of the Midwest since the late 80s. Um, I work as an attorney outside of Washington, D.C., and I suppose, though, I have a Walter Mitty fantasy of being a writer. So um, this is my my second book, and I'm very happy to share it with you. Great. Yeah, thanks for coming on and taking the time to talk about it. The book was very nicely put together, uh, liked the narrative as well as the historical aspects tying into uh, a Rust Belt city and all the rest of that. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on why you wanted to write this book? What is the story, uh, your personal connection? Yeah, so it is really the story is both the story of how the modern wax color crayon came to be with something that we take for granted and five generations ago, I had uh, in my family a couple of innovative sorts. One was a, a school superintendent, and the other one was basically an inventor. And between the two of them, they hit on a, a new formula for it, it created what was really the first modern school of chalk, and they began to add pigment after that. And from there, uh, there was much more innovation that led to the stand-up of what was uh, one of the world's largest crayon companies. At the time, it was called American Crayon Company. It was based in Sandusky, Ohio. And part of the, the motivation for writing the book was, it, it, there was a lot of personal history that went into this. Um, I was reading at the time uh, around 2015 that the factory that had made all of these wonderful crayons and chalks was ready to be demolished. And it was also at a time of some personal loss for me. Um, my mother and my sister died within a year of each other. Um, so I had to go back to my hometown of Sandusky, Ohio, and held funerals for them really in the, the graveyard where all of these ancestors that had the connection to the crayon company were buried. So there's both this, this, this history of the company, but also a very personal story there that really prompted me to say, well, I'm, I'm the last man standing in this family. I would love to share the stories of this, this, this wonderful crayon company um, while I still have them to, to share. Absolutely. So that's, you know, that's the, the impetus for writing it. So take us back. This basically reaches into the late 1800s after the civil war, um, a little before maybe like the formal gilded age, I would say, if, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, there were three families, right? Yeah, yeah, there were three families, and it, it took all three of these families. This were, you, you pegged it just right. We're talking just after the Civil War, 
the late 1860s. And it took three families to come together to make this this happened. And uh, if I could actually go even further back, um, the I, I can take take the reader back into uh, the very first chalk that was used in this country in schools at the time was a very very rough hewn uh, raw chalk that was literally carved out of the cliffs of Dover in England. And this chalk was used as ballast in the sailing ships that came over. And so when they, when they came to America, it was simply repurposed and, and carved up into these, these rough blocks that were used on uh, blackboards at the time. But the noise and the, the scratching was so, was, was really so hard on the ears that, um, one of those families, the man, a man in that family by the name of Marcellus Cowdery, who was a superintendent of the schools in Sandusky, said, "There really has to be a better way. You know, this is this is distracting for the students, the teachers, um, and to his ears, it was just enough to to push him in the direction of saying to his uh, brother-in-law, a man by the name of William Curtis, you're you're a pretty innovative guy. I think you could probably figure something out. And so what William did is he took this raw chalk that was being used and he started to mix it up in the family kitchen over the stove into a boiling mixture. And he added some of the local uh, Sandusky gypsum out of Sandusky Bay. It's a, it's a very silty uh, type of substance. And he experimented and boiled it over the stove, and he started to cook these these molds in the family oven. And lo and behold, um, the chalk with this finer solution to it really did work, and it, it was really a huge improvement. And um, uh, that was the beginning of the those two men creating something. And then a third family came along, a man by the name of John Whitworth. Um, who was a local uh, entrepreneur. He was involved in the local bank there, and he decided, you know, you've got a great idea here. He's what you would probably call today a, a venture capitalist. And so he raised the money and issued stock, and the company went public. And in 1890, they began to, to manufacture chalk, added colors. They, about 1903, developed the wax crayon for schools and it, it really took off from there. So there's a piece that I want to dial into that you kind of mentioned a, a few minutes ago in regards to the sonic experience of that early chalk and how it was a little abrasive, right? And then there's this other component in regards to crayons that you go into and additionally the factory, right? Um, in Sandusky regarding like sensation and perception of the production of crayons and the use of crayons, you know, like the smell and taste. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So you've really hit on something that was powerful to me, um, the perception and, and in particular the, the, the senses. Um, I think in writing this book, everyone that I talked to and doing my research 
if there was almost a near universal that, that, that came forward, it was people remembered that smell, that waxy crayon smell. And it took everyone back to the, those early days, that first day of school when you open that first box of crayons and, and you, you walked into that, that crayon smell. And it really, it's, it's, they say almost the, the olfactory senses are, are maybe the most powerful, or at least one of the more powerful for, for memory, stimulating memories. Right. And um, it took, took people back to their, their early days of school and nearly everybody got a smile on their face and they started to just sort of raps about poetically about their, their days being in school and coloring. And, you know, he would go into you know, our school along with all the area schools would do field trips there. And even before you set foot in the factory, you could smell that crayon smell wafting out of the, out of the factory. And I am, I was fortunate enough to have such an abundance of crayons. And I, as I say, in the very first chapter, the opening chapter of the book, um, I, I was like a mad miser, you know, just, I had buckets of crayons that were in our basement of our house. And I would just sort of plunge my hands into them and just, draw all over my body with with these (laughs) color crayons and i got so so obsessed as a little kid you know five or six years old i i took my two favorite colors blue and green and i i pulled off the wrappers of the crayons and i thought i'd try a little experiment which is to bite into them see does does blue taste different than green well they 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 didn't really taste any different they both kind of had that waxy taste but um, it really was an immersion into um, both, you know, sensing the smell of the crayons, the, the feel of them, um, and even trying to taste them. That's that's how powerful uh, it was in my early childhood. Well, you know, the thing is, there somebody had to do the experimentation, and I'm glad it was you. <laughs> I have a feeling I wasn't the first or the last. No, for sure. I I knew kids that were eating the crayons too. And I'm sure, you know, in, in my very early years, I'm sure I had chewed on some crayons as well. Uh, there's some other things here that, that you get into as the narrative catches up to the more modern times, right? Getting out of the historical part, but also, uh, dialing into legacy uh, preservation, right? And like your familial lineage that goes back through your mom to those early three families. How is that um, alive for you today? Is the book doing that for you? Um, Is anybody working in the industry as it is? Yeah, that that was a very strong piece of it. I'm I'm extremely fortunate, uh, Michael, to have a number of artifacts that have passed down to me. And um, I've had both, you know, literally pieces of the the crayon factory passed down to me. And those were almost, um, those, those were sort of my muses when I, when I wrote, I've, I've got, for example, uh, some of the wooden molds that the crayons would, would have rested in to dry. Uh, they still have a, a distinct crayon smell to them. Um, I have 
signage from the factory. I've got letterhead from the factory. Um, there's also a desk that's very central and important, so important that I, I really start a chapter off in the book talking about the significance of this desk that was in it was in the Cowdery family. That was one of the three. Right. And it's restoration. You know, founding families. And, and um, the desk was almost thrown on a scrap heap. It, it's it's this, this sort of massive, um, I want to say, you know, it's probably, I don't know what the style is, but like a heavy Victorian era piece of furniture with a leather top. It was they called it a partner's desk because it, it there are spaces for two chairs to face each other. And, you know, my understanding was, for example, at a law office, two partners would share the desk and and face each other across the desk, but it sits in my home today. It's um, for me, it's a, it's a very important touchstone. Um, I've also kind of got obsessed with collecting additional crayons. I had a, a small collection uh, given to me, but I, I kind of went off on a session and, and increased the collection to even more. You, you can do that these days on eBay, but my hope now is to turn that over to uh, the local, one of the local museums or historical societies where they can honor, you know, the industrial legacy of the town. And I've had really good interaction so far with with some of the local organizations um one of the things that i'm also seeking to do out of this project is um i'm asking that uh, the request be made to the state of ohio to put one of those historical markers there on the former site of the factory uh because the the, the factory was so significant and so important to the town's development. And it isn't, it isn't that I want people to, to go back to that age. It's just, I think it's worth remembering the significance of these stories for sure. And the factory itself. Um, one, if I could, just one little side note is when the factory was demolished, um, they, the, the, the demolition team did make attempted to salvage the factory whistle that um what really had significance because it was heard all over the city and into the county and it, it marked shift changes and people around the community remember the sound of that whistle and they they set their schedules by it they you know they set meal times by it and, and um so it, it was slightly damaged in the salvage operation but they did preserve most of it and uh so i'm hoping that maybe my collection could be donated and maybe consolidated with the whistle itself at some point. That'd be fantastic. There's a lot of research that went into the book and inside there's a little segment of historic photos. Do you want to talk about the process of digging all those up and curating uh, the ones that you ended up selecting? Yes, uh, I'd I'd love to. And and I will say um, I I do want to give a a call out to the University of Akron Press, who just did a wonderful job. Uh, first of all, I, I, I was delighted they took on the project. It's, it's part of a series that they do on Ohio history and culture. And I will also say, when you write for a university press, 
there is quite a bit of rigor involved. Sure. You, you just don't make statements. You need to you need to back those statements up with sources. So um, I appreciated the the rigor that they showed to to helping me make it a better book. Now the the photos, I'm I'm really also quite uh, I'm quite proud of of the photos that went into it. They're they're mostly color photos, and most of the photos are from my I, I I really did inherit a lot of like papers and photographs, so they do come down from family collections, um, and I tried to do a mix of both some pictures of those founding family members. Um, one I'm really, uh, really kind of proud of is there's a picture of William Curtis, who was the, he was the fellow that experimented in the family kitchen. He's in his full um, civil war uniform for the union and he's holding a rifle and a sword and he's looking very, very serious, but um, it was, it's an, I think it's an impressive picture. And then I've also included um, color pictures of many of the early products and the catalogs. I mean, this this was a book that I think cried out to have color pictures because it's about crayons. Absolutely. It's called Color Capital of the World. Um, and uh, you'll see products from, from, you know, from the beginning to the end of the company, um, as well as there's there's one that's I, I find really amusing. It's a picture of a crayon truck from the 1930s that delivered, um, you know, crayons to the different customers. And it, it's a, it's got a it basically it's a mock-up of a giant piece of chalk that overlays the, you know, the truck itself. You think of like the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, you know, the giant hot dog. Well, this is a giant piece of chalk. Um, I thought that was kind of a neat. Uh, a neat PR gimmick. Uh, I've got a picture of, you know, sketches of the factory. Of there's a picture of one of the stock certificates that was issued, and then finally, um, what I find kind of a poignant one is a, a picture of the factory. A few months before it was demolished, it was taken by um, one of the local photographers in town, Tim Fleck, who was gracious enough to allow me to use it in the book. So yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's a nice, I think it's a nice sort of collection, a nice variety of pictures. Let's drill down into the city of Sandusky and kind of round out some of the story that you're telling, which is both personal and regional in regards to the evolution of, you know, not only the factory and the economy, that it provided, but the downturn in Sandusky mm-hmm. or maybe in Rust Belt communities as industry shut down or became eclipsed yeah. by uh, innovation and things like that. How is Sandusky shaped up today? Are they reinventing themselves as many, um, you know, industrial revolution era cities that came up must do, you know, tell us a little bit about that as you get into it later in the, in the final chapters of the book. Yeah. Thank you for, for calling that out. I, you know, I do want to just, I wanted to put early in the book, the first part of the book is really sort of putting a stake in the ground and showing that 
you know, Sandusky was an early innovator. It, it was part of, uh, there was this, this huge uh, surge in innovation following the Civil War, especially notable in the Midwest and in particular Ohio. I mean, you had people who, who were felt, you know, we, we, that they could invent pretty much anything. And I think that's the spirit that mobilized the Curtis and Cowdery families. In the beginning, you had, you know, the, the Wright brothers were, were down in Dayton in their bicycle garage. You had Henry Ford just around the corner in Detroit doing all these innovative things. And, um, you know, Sandusky was, was no different. It was, it was part of all of this. So I think I, I, I make a point of telling that history to remind others that, that, you know, this is, this is part of their heritage. But um, you're right. When I when I grew up, it was really more at you know, I was born in the early 60s. And by the time I was into uh, high school, you you pretty much knew that companies, the local uh, companies who had once been so innovative were were downsizing, were closing their doors. Um, I worked at a metals foundry one summer in college and it was a company that my dad had started out in um, a few years after that, the company was sold off and demolished like a lot of other, like the American Crane company eventually was. So, so I do, I do track the history of the, the build, the boom, and then finally the bust. But I think Sandusky, um, they have, I think turned a, a corner with that had some very uh, visionary leadership. Um, they, they had a city manager for several years, Eric Wobzer, who I talk about in the book, who wanted to take a lot of Sandusky's heritage and not try to return to the, the manufacturing age, but just repurpose it for, you know, pay homage to the, to the great buildings that were still there and these wonderful limestone buildings that are all over the waterfront in Sandusky, but, but look forward and see what Sandusky had. And it has essentially a wonderful waterfront location that I think a lot of cities would love to have. Absolutely. It has a recreational area. Like uh, people always say, isn't that the place where the amusement park is Cedar point? Right. Yes. They, they have Cedar point. They, and they've also been called the, roller coaster capital of the world. So I think they've pivoted and, and they're really trying to to use this as their look look ahead for their future. Um so I I'm I'm cheering them on from from afar and I'm really just pleased to say you know they're they're doing a lot of great innovative things. Well John, thank you for joining me today. Learned a lot. I absolutely enjoyed the book and glad to have you on today. Well Michael, thank you so much. I'm I'm really delighted to share it. Uh, the book is uh, available through the University of Akron Press, uh, and of course, all of the the big guys, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and of course, um, I'm always a big one for your your local independent bookstore. And um, I'll be out doing some events, author events uh, in the Midwest uh, in the next few months. So uh, I hope. Hope your listeners will take a look, and uh, if they're interested, uh, pick up a copy. Absolutely.